0: George Lucas, the director of American Graffiti and Star Wars, is a longtime dedicated fan of the comics. He collects the artist's original drawings of Prince Valiant and Flash Gordon.
1: Basically, I, you know, my main interest in school and ever since has been cultural anthropology and uh, sociology and those uh, related social fields, and and so my take on art is is more culturally oriented. And I look at art as sort of a, as a, uh, as a way of judging a culture and understanding not really what it looked like or anything, but what the people were thinking and what the people were feeling and what was going on at a particular time. The comic book, comic books and comic art is, um, is a really strong and uh, a very, very close to the pulse of the culture kind of art. Uh, and it's really a cultural signpost of the times of, in which it was drawn uh, which is, to me, the most important aspect of art. And I think it has a much more, it's a lot more important than, say, uh, you know, New Hampshire landscapes or, or anything like that. I mean, it really tells you what's going on in a country or what the people are feeling, uh, uh, and, at a particular moment in history. And in uh, that way, I don't think it'll ever die out. I don't think it'll, you know, I think what is drawn today will become very important. It's the uh, the hieroglyphs of the, or the graffiti of our times.
2: fans and moof milkers everywhere welcome to episode number 181 of blast points this is jason and this gabe today we are talking all about the classic star wars newspaper strips the comic strips started in 1979 went all the way to 84 they're amazing i think before we started getting in deep for this episode i had just a passing knowledge of these things and
3: man they're good stuff they're some of my favorites I've been bugging you about this for a long time It's like Clone Wars all over again it's true <laughs> you, you gotta check these out you gotta check these out
2: you'd think I would trust your trust you by now because I, like, I think when, when I started actually watching the Clone Wars I was like I am so sorry <laughs> you're right Tell your sister
3: when uh, Dark Horse reprinted these they called them classic Star Wars which. Compared to the Marvel stuff, they are a little more classic and classy, which is kind of funny because they are, you know, they're a, a what? It, well, I guess we'll get into it, but kind of the same same time frame. But they they have a little different feel than the Marvel comics. They
2: do, they do, and yeah. We're gonna we're gonna get in thick with it, yeah. And I think my problem with I had one of the the Dark Horse trade paperbacks of classic Star Wars. I, I only had the one Escape to Hoth. And now that I've read more, I realized that I just had, like, the middle part of a story. And I think that's why every time I tried to read it, I was like, I don't know what's going on here.
3: I think Escape to Hoth is the end. (laughs) So it would make even less sense. Yeah.
2: Well, do you remember these at all when we were kids in
3: the the Muskegon Chronicle? I I don't. And that's why I wanted to ask you about that. Because I was thinking these would have been in the newspaper when we were old enough to know what these were. But... I kind of feel like maybe we just didn't get the paper when I was a kid because I don't remember seeing these.
2: I remember seeing these in the Chronicle and being like, "Oh, Star Wars!" But especially when you when like when you read the collections, the Marvel just put out uh, I think last year or two years ago a, a fantastic collection that puts a lot of these strips together in a in a comic book format, and when you see like what they originally looked like in the newspaper. It's like, no wonder when I was like six years old, it made no sense because literally like somebody would ask a question and then the next day that question was answered in the next week. I don't know how anybody could ever follow these like serialized newspaper strips.
3: Oh yeah. Well, I don't know how they even wrote them because, you know, reading how the rules for the newspaper strips, how, they had to break it up and like, was it like things that happened in the weekend had to be recapped on Monday because some people didn't get the weekend paper. And then the Sunday paper, they had a bigger page so you could do more stuff, but nothing that happened in Sunday could really affect the story because some people didn't get the Sunday paper. And it's just like, you had to be a super genius, I would think, as a, as a writer to just write stories that work in these so many different configurations. So the fact that they came up with just these cool stories is is even more impressive.
2: I remember like also trying to read like Prince Valiant. I remember especially in, like the Sunday paper being like, "This seems awesome! It is like fantasy and people with swords. He's got like a funny haircut, and there's people with swords." And I always, I even tried like, "Okay, I'm going to cut out Prince Valiant every Sunday out of like the the Chronicle." And I had like a little book that I tried to, and I was like, "Maybe if I read it as a book." <laughs> <laughs> and instead, i remember i got like four weeks into it and i was like it's this still makes no sense
3: i think i i remember that one in the paper and, and trying to read that one too and i think it just had too many words and i was just like why are there so many words <laughs> there's like one two pictures and there's so many words i just i'll go read uh, hager the horrible or something
2: and said we've all heard the stories that when george lucas was a kid he was really into comic books Everyone's heard that, and I don't think it's a shock to anyone that knows anything about young George Lucas. But what's crazy is when you start looking at George Lucas's history with comics and comic books and comic art, and especially the kind of comics he was reading back in the 50s, it's really kind of fascinating how that is spread out. Even to this day, I mean, even on the website for the the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, it has a quote from 1924 from Gilbert Selds, who was a noted writer and cultural critic at the time. And this is the quote on the Lucas Museum website. It says, Of all the lively arts, the comic strip is the most despised. And with the exception of the movies, it is the most popular. Yeah. I mean, you think <laughs> so you think about that, and you think of like the fact that today the the highest grossing movie of all time is
3: Avengers Endgame. <laughs> the 24th movie in a series of comic strips, the movie, in the movie. Yeah. The th- Things have not changed.
2: and Yeah, young George Lucas was, at the time, in the 50s, he was reading Flash Gordon comics by Al Williamson, written by Archie Goodwin, and he was reading the weird science and weird fantasy EC comic stuff, and spark in the imagination of that young little guy somewhere in Modesto. (laughs) In the very early 1970s, uh, Lucas and Marsha were using the last of the dollars they had at the time to go to France, where THX 138 was being shown at the Cannes Film Festival. And before they left for France, they stopped in New York City to visit uh, Francis Coppola, who was at the time, I think he was either just getting ready to film or he was filming The Godfather there. And during that trip to New York City, George Lucas, uh, he was talking to United Artists about American Graffiti, United Artists, had offices in New York City, and he also during that trip, walked into King Features to talk to them about him doing a Flash Gordon film, which we all know the story. Like King Features, pretty much just brushed him off, and they said they wanted uh, Fellini right. to to make a Flash to make their Flash Gordon yeah. film, which we all know that inspired George Lucas to be like, "Well, I'm just going to make my own Flash Gordon," and the kind of seeds were planted to him for him to make his own weird space opera thing. So years later, after Graffiti had come out, Universal's executive offices were all in New York City. And so Lucas was back in New York City. And him and Gary Kurtz would go into this comic shop that was in New York City. Which also, it makes me wonder if while he was there with Marsha, if he stopped in there too. I don't know. Maybe he did. I don't know if he George was like, well, oh, we got to go to this cool comic book place. I was here with Marsha. He would just sneak out. It was this place called the Super Snipe Comic Book Emporium and Art Gallery. And it was owned by this guy, Ed Summer, who Ed Summer, Edward Summer, is a pivotal piece of Star Wars history that so few people talk about. But without the influence of Ed Summer, I don't know where Star Wars would be. Star Wars could be a very different thing without Ed Summer. Like I said, Graffiti had come out, and Lucas goes in there, and he actually had some money this time. And he's talking to Ed Summer that he wants to buy some original Alex Raymond comic art. He he wants to buy some Flash Gordon comic art. Summer supposedly takes him into this back room where Summer has this massive collection of original comic art. And so supposedly him and Lucas just sit back there talking about comics comic art they're talking they were talking about like a mutual uh, appreciation for frank frazetta the Al williamson howard shakin carl banks crazy disney stuff and ed summer at the time he's already an artist and a filmmaker and a photographer so him and lucas actually have a lot in common and there's a great story rinsler did a three part interview with Ed Summer in Star Wars Insider issues 139, 140, and 141, where there's a story where after Star Wars had come out, uh, Coppola is having this party in New York. Uh, Lucas is there and Ed Summer's there, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, and a ton of people. They get ready to leave this party, and I guess there's like a huge throng of people outside where they're at. And Lucas, like, freaks out. He's like, I can't go out there. I can't do it. And there's all these people, like, with posters and stuff to be signed. Because Ed Summer, shorter guy, he's got glasses, he has a beard. He goes out there and pretends to be George Lucas and is signing George Lucas on people's <laughs> posters. And, and the actual George Lucas sneaks out the back. Oh, wow. But they were buddies. And, you know, they had a friendship that lasted a super long time. Um, And as George Lucas is developing the screenplay for Star Wars, all of its many, many different drafts and versions it went through, he was constantly in contact with Ed Summer. And Ed Summer always got it, you know, because he was a comic book fan. He was a science fiction fan and he was a fan of old Flash Gordon comics. And if you got Luke flying, riding around on a giant bird, someone who's steeped in those kind of crazy comics is just like, yeah, dude. Keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) It's just how it goes. It's a regular old day. So eventually, George Lucas becomes a co-owner of the Super Snipe Comics Emporium. And one crazy thing that I had no idea happened, in the summer of 1978, at the Super Snipe Comic Emporium, an art gallery, they had an art show, a Star Wars original art show with original paintings by Ralph McQuarrie and drawings by Joe Johnston. Oh man. I know. And they made prints that were available for sale of their artwork. And there's the, like in one of these insider issues there's a flyer for this with this incredible drawing of like a Y-wing on it and it's like at this comic shop in New York, it's a Star Wars art show in the summer of 78. <laughs> like what? So this Super Snipe was like You know, it was co-owned by George Lucas. And there was also a comic art gallery in there. And then you think of, like we started the episode with, everything going on with this George Lucas Museum. I mean, they just did that panel at San Diego a couple weeks ago or whatever. And comic art is a huge part of this Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Kind of what started at this weird little comic book store in New York City in... The early 70s is still going on at this giant museum in Los Angeles, and that's just kind of awesome.
3: You can tell Lucas likes what he likes
2: <laughs> and, and still likes it.
4: I started collecting when I was really in film school. You know, I started out by collecting comic art. I bought an Uncle Scrooge comic page for like $25 and eventually moved myself up to where I could buy the high-end illustrator art. At one point, uh, I wanted to become an illustrator, um, my father said, no way, I'm going to pay for that. You can go do it on your own if you want, but you'll never make a living as an artist. Illustrators have to tell a lot in one frame. The storyteller, telling stories yeah. to a new generation. Right. It could be you. Well, yeah, and I have a number of Rockwells that are about storytelling. My good friend Steve Spielberg also has a Rockwell collection, and he focuses on um, storytelling but also on movies. When you see a Rockwell, you see something of yourself in there. No matter how who you are, no matter where you came from.
0: Contemporary artists who would well, say this is this is sentimental, this is schmaltzy, right. it's not edgy. Well, it's it's
4: you know, the end is you either look at the world through cynical eyes or through idealistic eyes. This museum, if anything, is a is a dedication to cultural fantasy.
2: Because Ed Summer had so many connections in the comic book industry while Lucas was filming Star Wars, while he was in Tunisia in 1975, Summer was going around and selling Star Wars to Marvel and DC and trying to get the comic book companies interested in this thing George Lucas was making. And because he was just, he would go into these comic book places or talk to these people and be like, this guy is making. Flash Gordon all over again. And this is like comic book material. But of course, like everyone was, you know, in those days of Star Wars, nobody really, no one really believed in it. It was kind of wild. And filming wasn't even done yet. Everyone pretty much said no. But eventually they, they go with Marvel Comics and that's a whole nother story. But kind of after that, because of their love of like the newspaper comic strips, Summer approaches Al Williamson and Archie Goodwin to do a Star Wars daily newspaper strip.
0: I was working on uh, on X-9, and I got a call around 1970, uh, was, 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 was that when it came out, 78, 79, the uh, movie? About two years prior to that, I got a call from this fellow that I had met at a convention, uh, he sold comic books. Yes. You know, he'd go to the conventions, comic conventions. And he, he had a table and he sold comic books. Standard stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I got to talking and every time I'd see him at a convention, we'd talk, you know, past the time of day. One day I got a call from him. i pick up the phone and you know, hey, how you doing? My I says, hey. And he says, hey, the guy that did American Graffiti is doing a science fiction movie. He'd like you to do the adaptation in a comic book. Yeah, sure, you know the guy who did American Graffiti, you know. (laughs) So I said, well, you know, I really don't think I have the time, you know, and that was it, and hung up. Uh, (laughs) Two years later, Star Wars comes out, and I hear about it, you know, but I I start getting calls. Hey, have you seen Star Wars? (laughs) I said, no, not yet. You know, the guy that did, uh, you know, George Lucas is a a fan of comics. He loves your work. And i what is that? You know, I couldn't believe it. So it turns out... That it was George Lucas that wanted me to do, who had told this guy, Good, the comic book geek. Holy monkey. Oh, holy, holy but you monkey. see, this guy never said anything. Right. And it turned yeah. out he owned the shop that the kid ran.
2: So since they couldn't do it, Summer goes to the legendary Russ Manning, who did Tarzan comics for newspaper strips for roughly from around 1965 to 1979 kind of he stopped doing tarzan to kind of do star wars russ manning back in the lucas era of reading comics he did a comic called magnus robot hunter 4000 a.d i don't know why i've never heard of that it sounds like the greatest <laughs> thing ever yeah <laughs> which supposedly george lucas was a huge fan of which also i'm not surprised yeah you're, you're speaking my language there mangus robot hunter 4000 a.d i guess for a while was outselling Superman comics and people, it was like the biggest comic ever. Where's our Magnus robot Hunter 4,000 AD movie. I'm still waiting. I don't know. I'm ready to go. But yeah, Russ Manning, he, he served in world war two. He did a, he did, he was a cartoonist in his army base, got back. He was a huge fan of science fiction. He saw star Wars when it came out into theaters four times opening weekend kind of like Ed Summer, he just, he got it. He was just like, this is my kind of thing. And so he was the second choice and they went to him and said, we want you to do a daily Star Wars comic strip. And off he went and we'll we'll get into it more. And we start actually getting into the nitty gritty of the comics. But so his stuff was a completely different flavor from the Goodwin-Williamson stuff later, but it's pretty amazing on its own. And it's I don't we'll, we'll get into all that later. So, unfortunately, Russ Manning had stomach cancer. Supposedly everything I read about him just said that he was a complete and total professional and wanted to keep working through his cancer, which is incredible and crazy, but he started bringing in different writers to help him with writing the strip eventually. Some of his assistants took over some of the drawing duties. Uh, Archie Goodwin actually helped write for a while. Some of the other artists were folks like uh, this guy, Dave Stevens, uh, Alfredo Alcala, Rick Hoberg. And like I was saying that the Marvel volume one of the newspaper strips book that came out, going through it and reading it is super fun, but it can be challenging because there's a lot of different storylines. And a lot of times when different writers and different artists would come on, they would just ditch the story from before and completely start something new. But a lot of them have like a lot of things in common, like a talking lizard man. (laughs) And you're like, wait, is this the lizard man that was just in the last story? Because one story didn't end and another one just mysteriously begins.
3: But it's kind of neat because it almost gives it like an anthology feel sometimes where it's like a bunch of different stories that are loosely related as opposed to just this continuous, strict continuity kind of story.
2: Russ Helm took over writing duties for a while and – Kind of when they were really stuck with writers or the end of the Russ Manning area, they did a complete newspaper strip adaptation of Brian Daly's
3: Han Solo at Stars End book, which is crazy. Yeah, it's not every day you get comic adaptations. Well, I guess in the Star Wars world, you do get comic comic adaptations of books quite quite frequently. So, uh,
2: kind of after Star Wars had come out and was such a huge hit, a lot of these old fashioned like. Science fiction artists from back in the day kind of came out of the woodwork. And a lot of them went to Ed Summer and were like, can you show my art to George Lucas? I want to do something Star Wars. And it's crazy, too, because there's something in the Insider, too, where Lucas at the time wanted to do a hardcover book in the late 70s of a lot of these artists doing Star Wars art. And he was going to have Frank Frazetta do the cover art for this book of Star Wars art that was going to come out in the late 70s. Man. And then after Frazetta passed away, I guess the whole thing just fell apart. Wow.
5: Will all those in class who can identify Frank Frazetta raise their hands, please? Frazetta. Frank. He's an artist. You've seen his work. Lots of it, in fact. You have probably been tempted by it. Certainly, if you have children over seven, you have helped to support Frank Frazetta. ...who is one of the most familiar artists around, whom nobody knows. Now he has a gallery that is willing and eager to show Mr. Frazetta and colleagues... ...it is Super Snipe at 153 East 84th, an offshoot of the Super Snipe comic book store. Frazetta is a comic book artist, and this gallery will show originals of comic book work... ...and suitable for framing prints... In fact, these are covers of books in the sword and sorcery department. What is happening here is that popular illustration is being elevated to art. And I guess it's up to us to decide whether or not it stays up there.
2: So with Russ Manning gone, they went back to Goodwin and Williamson, their first choice, the old Flash Gordon people. And what was, what was their first assignment they did for coming back into the the Star Wars thing.
3: Well, they were able to get them to do the movie adaptation of Empire Strikes Back for Marvel Comics. And after that, they were so happy with that, they had offered them the daily comic strip again. And unfortunately, Williamson says he had to turn it down because he was doing the comic book adaptation of the Flash Gordon movie, which I wish I knew that before because I've never actually tried to look that up. I would imagine that that's probably pretty good. Probably a good read. But basically, he said once he was done with that, then he would finally be able to um, start working on the Star Wars strip. Yeah, and then
2: once uh, Goodwin and Williamson came on, they were doing this Star Wars daily newspaper strip all the way until 1984, when it finally ended. Except there was, I guess, after a couple of years, like right before, or maybe right around when Williamson and Goodwin came on, I don't know exactly, but... The L.A. Times uh, felt the Star Wars newspaper strip wasn't popular enough and dropped it. The the, the, The strip was distributed by the L.A. Times syndicate, so it kind of would mean the death of the Star Wars comic strip in general. So in comes fan club president Maureen Garrett, who I think we mentioned in our fanzines episode. She begins a massive letter-writing campaign for the Star Wars fan club, where she sent every member of the Star Wars fan club a letter in the mail with the phone number and address of the L.A. Times syndicate, whatever was in charge of distributing these newspaper strips to every newspaper in America. And I guess they got so many phone calls and letters from Star Wars fans in the late 70s early 80s that the times kept it around and yeah it lasted another another
3: 3 years i'm sad that i didn't remember seeing this as a kid cuz even thinking about it now just like coming home every day and there being a new star wars thing in the paper it's got it would have been pretty amazing right the movie <laughs> Like, I remember just being so excited, like, when Clone Wars was on, like, knowing, hey, every weekend I'm going to get a new Star Wars story. And to think for, you know, four years, every day you'd come home and there would be two panels of, of new Star Wars stuff to see every day. Like, that's it doesn't get much better than that, really. we got to give tribute to Ed Summer because he was
2: instrumental in connecting the dots between Star Wars and comic books. He kind of ushered in that marriage, which... When I was reading about him and I was thinking about this, I was like, whatever, what other franchise, whatever, has had such a symbiotic relationship as Star Wars and comics? Like, (laughs) you know, there's always been Star Wars and there's always been Star Wars comics. And when... In the, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there was the, the amazing Marvel series. And when Star Wars started to rise up again in the 90s, there was the, the incredible work Dark Horse did. And now in this new era of Star Wars, we have Marvel again. There's highlights and lowlights in all of those. But Star Wars and comics is a really bizarre, awesome relationship. And really without Ed Summer and the Super Snipe Comic Emporium in New York City and some fateful –
3: nerding out sessions between him and lucas i don't know if we would have all this the original star wars movies were comic book movies before they were really comic book movies the way the story was told and the the way the action and everything i mean they don't seem out of place as a comic book it just still feels like the same thing it's not like they're drastically different because it is really that type of story and that type of storytelling that you would get in a comic book just in a in a movie for movie form. It's just amazing too, that these artists who inspired George
2: Lucas's imagination back in the fifties, then kind of took the building blocks of what he created in basically at the time, one movie and, and just adapted them back into this fifties kind of pulp sci-fi world. And I know the, the comic, the newspaper strips exist in this wonderful little kitschy star Wars, world of where Star Wars is more Flash Gordon than it is Star Wars. And I don't know. It's it's just awesome.
3: Well, I think that's one of the things I enjoy so much with these is you can tell they're made by people who had the same influences as George Lucas, but not necessarily people who grew up on Star Wars. They grew up on what George Lucas grew up. So they come from the same building blocks, but they're not maybe an exact copy of star wars because it's the feel of star wars and it's the star wars characters but it's like a different take on star wars and it's a little bit lighter and it's it's the stories are short and sweet and weird and there's lots of goofy romance and goofy villains and it's just they're fun more than anything and it's not like a big elaborate dramatic story and it's just short bursts of fun which is feels a lot like if anything like the original movie
4: I would say probably the original impetus for the whole thing was I used to watch a serial on television called Adventure Theater, and they had uh, Flash Gordon Congress of the universe on it, and I used to love that, so I went off and wrote my own space opera.
2: So to get ready for this episode, we have been swimming in a sea of Star Wars newspaper strip comics. Like like I've said a million times already, the the first volume of Marvel's collected version is out, and I think the second volume just came out like a couple weeks ago. I don't know, let's start going through and talking about some of the amazing stuff that was done in the Star Wars newspaper comic strips.
3: Yeah, I have the Dark Horse trade paperbacks that came out I think in the mid 90s which I didn't get these until I think it was after attack of the clones cuz I remember the lead up to revenge of the sith I think I was losing my mind <laughs> and I just I was just needed new star wars stuff to hold me over and I think I was maybe afraid of the marvel comics cuz there were so many issues and the volumes were so huge and there were so many But I for some reason came across these and it was like there's like four trade paperbacks and you have all of them. And I think I thought, well, that's something I can I can get the whole thing and and not worry about it. And I remember just like being blown away by just how much fun these are. I think coming at them originally after seeing the first two prequels, too, they have that just over the top outrageous prequel prequel goofiness to them, too, where there's just random creatures and. I don't know, it was just a perfect fit for my mind at the time. I could totally see that, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if we go back to the the early, early stuff, it definitely has what, more of a, say like 50s and 60s feel, right? The, uh, the Russ Manning stuff. Yeah, which
2: I really enjoyed. I mean, Luke and Leia don't look anything like Mark Hamill and like Carrie Fisher and Han Solo does not look anything like Harrison Ford. But somehow, Russ Manning just... Gets Star Wars in such a just boiling it down to its essential essential ingredients. There's just something so Star Wars about the 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 Russ Manning stuff.
3: Well, I like if anything, Luke and Leia look like Donnie and Marie. They sure do. <laughs> so it's it's almost like the only reference he had was Donnie and Marie as Luke and Leia because Leia looks just like Marie Osmond. <laughs> But yeah, you're going through these. There's Luke gets attacked by foam. There's uh, interrogation droids. But the big star of these is Black Hole, who is this like hologram man. But I think even people that don't know this comic, they Black Hole had basically black armored stormtroopers that were eventually called Black Hole troopers, named after Black Hole. And I think now they call them Shadow troopers or something. But like. That whole idea of these black stormtroopers or death troopers now as a variation on those kind of goes back to these comics and the the wacky hologram spaceman black hole who Darth Vader hires to get those nasty rebels.
2: I think like the second story of the Russ Manning series, when I read that, it totally blew my mind. I think, you know, which one I'm talking about when they go to Canto Bite? they go to cantobite and it's not like they it's not called cantobite but they go basically to a gambling world which looks almost exactly like cantobite is filled with wacky aliens all the gambling there is being done to fund the empire and they're going there looking for a top secret informant and it's like luke and leia running around basically cantobite in a 1979 comic I was reading it and I was just like, you've got to be kidding.
3: (laughs) There's basically some gambling game that's like watching subatomic particles move or something crazy like that. And Luke's able to use the force to move them and win a bunch of gold coins. Yeah, I love Leia is just like... Luke's really lucky.
2: Don't have him play any gambling games. Luke's got lots of luck. <laughs> they never call out the force by name. It's almost kind of like the Maverick Moon where Luke, you know, Luke every once in a while takes out his lightsaber. There's even one part where he uses his lightsaber as a flashlight, which I thought was kind of awesome because
3: we've all been there. That is not his lightsaber. Or is that in a different story? One of the stories there is a flashlight called a like a light be a light rod or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a lightsaber. It's a flashlight that sticks out a b- flashlight beam. Well,
2: that changes, that changes everything.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that might have been later in one of the uh, the later stories. So maybe we're thinking of two different things. But there's definitely in one of the stories later on where it's – I thought it was his lightsaber as a flashlight because it was yellow. I was like, why is his lightsaber yellow? And they even call it out in the text that it's like a a light pole or some goofy name. I well, mean, it's like the old Kenner action figure where Luke had a yellow lightsaber. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I love
2: the whole – the. The Russ Manning stuff is kind of framed, at least for the first few stories, by C-3PO is at some supercomputer, like in the future or something, and he's talking to this supercomputer and he wants to record all the adventures of his friends, of Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and Princess Leia. And so it's basically all the stories you're hearing in these comics is C-3PO telling stories of what happened where i was just like man how awesome is
3: that let's do let's do a tv show that's that it's like 3po stories i'm glad you figured that out because i i was having trouble (laughs) figuring out why he was talking to that giant computer so (laughs) i'm glad you figured out. oh and we can't forget who who are we introduced in these stories that we never knew we wanted to meet there's a whole
2: amazing story with Princess Leia where somehow she ends up on this planet or something and turns out this town is ruled by Lady Tarkin, Grand Moff Tarkin's wife. She is so pissed that Tarkin is dead and it's this whole amazing story where like Leia has to pretend to be like Lady Tarkin's servant or something and eventually she gets figured out. It's insane.
3: Lady Tarkin is Angry and yelling in every panel. And for some reason, the people that either work for her or on that planet are like the village people. They're guys in short shorts (laughs) with work vests and construction helmets on and no shirts. It's chaos.
2: There's a crazy story where Luke has to go back to Tatooine. And it's great in the beginning. Luke is just like, I don't ever want to go back to Tatooine. That place is terrible. And, like, you get some kind of disease where, like, a star field is in people's eyes. And that's how Darth Vader is going to find where the rebel base is by looking in people's eyes and it projects a star field. It's insane.
3: <laughs> yeah. They were not afraid to get weird in the newspaper strips. Maybe that was one of the ones that you read and you're like, I don't understand why Luke has stars in his eyes. I can't keep up with this.
2: Well, it's kind of weird, too. As the Russ Manning stuff kind of goes on. Like, I feel like the early stuff is absolutely incredible. And you look at some of the credits and kind of like when they were bringing in a different writer kind of every two weeks, some of the stories start to, start to fizzle out a little bit. But at the end of the Russ Manning stuff, we get our first appearance of Boba Fett. And it is possibly the greatest Boba Fett story ever told.
3: Yeah, because there's these – I don't even know what they were. There's guys that look like monkeys, but they just have gas masks and fur coats. So they're like these gas mask snowshoe sledding monkey men. And Boba Fett shows up and Luke is there and they end up. We get Luke and Boba Fett skiing together. Yes. (laughs) Down down a mountain.
2: (laughs) And they're like buddies. Boba Fett's like, yeah, it takes some practice figuring out how to ski. And Luke's like wearing like his X-Wing pilot suit the whole time, skiing down a mountain with Boba Fett. It happened. It's real. It's amazing. Why haven't we seen skiing Boba Fett at Celebration? It was snowing in Chicago. People totally missed that opportunity.
3: Yeah, and why we've never gotten the the skiing Boba Fett action figure, I don't know. We always get him with his jetpack on, but never with his skis. But
2: what's crazy is, you look at the date of the skiing Boba Fett comic, it was like... May through July 1980, so like while Empire Strikes Back was out in theaters, you could pick up a newspaper and be like, wow there's Boba Fett on skis The
3: Star Wars stuff's pretty good
5: He's no good to me dead Put Captain Solo in the cargo hold Well if you want to be a skier, let me tell you what to do. You gotta have time, like a month or two
2: So then later we start to move into the the Goodwin Williamson stuff. So what's the deal with this
3: stuff? So the, these are the ones that I really these are like the sweet spot for me cuz these are they still have the the wackiness and goofiness of the of the earlier ones, but it's a little more coherent and a little more maybe like the films, but still not afraid to get to get a little wild. What's cool with these two is they also do make a point of the kind of the overarching story is we learn about them building vader's superstar destroyer they do i think they call it the executor in here not the executor so according to the comics it's the executor because vader sm- like basically blows the people up and he says that's why they called this the executor something like that <laughs> <laughs>
2: mystery solved yeah if if only they had a part where han solo was picking out a coat and he's like i want the blue one and then looks right at the like looks right at the reader
3: i said blue um and also yeah over the course of the comics we figure out why they left the yavin 4 base basically because vader's coming to get them in his super star destroyer and they find Hoth. it's starting to do some of the kind of in between the movies world building stuff but man There is some crazy fun stuff in these. Well, and one cool thing with
2: Goodwin and Williamson's comic, they introduced like some new vehicles. Like, there is a really, 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 really cool looking ATST walker thing. Maybe it's based on like a Joe Johnston sketch or something, but it just came out like last week that something extremely similar to this design. Is going to be in the Mandalorian, which was bizarre timing. As, like, I think it was Yak Face posted a picture from the Goodwin Williamson comics, and it's like, wait, what's
3: happening here? Yeah, are you, are you reading our text messages? We've <laughs> 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 just been talking about these comics back and forth, and then all of a sudden, yeah, they show up in the news last week. But reading these again, too, I could kind of see where maybe there's some similarities because. You know, if you're doing an episodic TV show where it's hour-long stories, it is going to feel kind of more like these, where they're these smaller self-contained things and it's not this big. I mean, there might be a big overarching story, but it's going to feel more like a newspaper strip type thing with shorter stories. And from what we've seen of The Mandalorian and then reading these comics, they they almost do have a kind of a similar feel, too, of just because they're kind of small stakes stuff where it's just you're your characters in a seedy spaceport on some adventure stuff and not necessarily like the fate of the galaxy is at stake. And there's not as much kind of Jedi force type things too because they're kind of, even though these came out post-Empire, story-wise, they're kind of filling in the gaps between A New Hope and Empire. They spend a lot of time with the
2: that bounty hunter they ran into on Ord Mantell. like Score? score
3: yeah he is all over the place well i think that's one of the things too with these that i enjoy is i like i like that time frame between a new hope and empire when luke's kind of still an idiot a little bit and like doesn't (laughs) really know about the force he still has he's he's not anywhere near a jedi yet and then there's still so much of the the love triangle stuff where does leia like luke does leia like han and they really kind of you can tell they have the some of that classic newspaper strip romance background, because there's just, there's always some romance problems going on in these.
2: But I thought Star Wars wasn't about romance.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and then also with the romance, there's always a frogman for whatever reason, too. Like every story has at least one frogman in it. There's some sort of, it's a lizard guy, a
2: frogman. Usually, sometimes, often, they're wearing a hat, which bonus points, but yeah. When it, ke- it keeps going even, like, as we get closer to Return of the Jedi, like, what, Mon Calamari start to show up? and
3: Oh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it just builds and builds and builds because by the time you get to kind of the middle of the run, they end up underwater at this underwater rebel base on a completely water planet, and they're fighting an octopus underwater. It kind of turns into Phantom Menace there because they meet one of Han's old flames, who's this— lady who's now with the, the rebellion or like second in command is like trying to sell them out to the empire. And he has like giant pink ears and Ray-Ban sunglasses.
2: <laughs> just, just cross out her name in every issue and just write in Kira. And it's really awesome.
3: And probably the most amazing of these stories, there's a whole storyline where Ben Kenobi shows up again and Luke's like, oh my gosh, Ben Kenobi's still alive But he's actually just an actor that Darth Vader hired and gave him plastic surgery. It's totally the Darth Vader out of the VHS game where he's just everything he says is actor. I need you to speak to me. Actor. It's time for you to do this. He just keeps calling this guy actor. And by the end of the story, the guy realizes that Ben Kenobi must have been a great guy. Because everybody respects him so much, so he sacrifices himself to save Luke. This is the content I want in the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> uh, there's a gladiator planet where Han and Chewie go to get some pirate crystal. Yes, we meet a new fencing pirate character who has a droid that he, that he practices fencing with. Yes, then Luke and three PO get stranded on a, a snow planet that's called Hoth, and they meet an imperial governor and his daughter who have escaped from the empire and after a scuffle and the daughter is shot we realize that the the governor and his daughter are actually robot duplicates of a real yes (laughs) imperial governor and his daughter and luke holds the girl's robot hand while she dies and she thanks him for teaching them to feel or something. (laughs) It's pretty incredible, but there is literally a panel of Luke's gloved hand holding her. The flesh is melted away, and he's holding her raw robot hand. It's right out of Attack of the Clones. It's all in here. It's so good.
2: And there's something that connects it to the previous week's episode with with, uh, Tom Spina and the the Starblazer magazine,
3: right? The, The more you dig into these, the more... Just jewels and gems you find. Yeah, there's basically a whole storyline with an evil witch named Sybil, who at first looks like Luke's love interest from earlier in the run. But eventually she turns into this new character, Sybil, who's really this old shriveled up witch who is a, a mind witch.
2: All this stuff and I was thinking about this after we we, we did the Starblazer thing with, with Tom. This whole concept of witches in Star Wars, this is before the Battle for Endor, this is before Willow, this is before we had the witches of Dathomir, this is before witches in Star Wars was just something that
3: happened. But according to this, witches in Star Wars were always there. They've always been there. Oh man. There's a storyline with general so so basically there's a lot of if you like Yavin Four and the Masasi Temple. There's a whole bunch of action there. They find this giant muscle lizard man that lives in the basement that was left there thousands of years ago to defend the temples who goes on a rampage and Luke tricks him to go into a spaceship and they send him to space to find his friends from a thousand years ago who left him there. He shows up later on. He fights Chewbacca. We meet uh, General Dodonna's son, who looks like bootleg Biggs, mixed with Charles Bronson, who has a really, really good name. Yeah, Dodonna's son's name is Varad. Varad? Yeah, like he's Rad with a V at the beginning. <laughs> so the whole storyline with him is, I think, Vader, when he's on his way to destroy Yavin 4, he runs into some rebel ships and, and blows them up, and and Varad basically runs away. And abandons everyone, and Luke figures it out, and no one knows what Luke, so Vrad tries to kill Luke, and it's just, it's drama. I don't know, I can't get enough of these. By the end, Jabba the Hutt shows up, you can tell they're kind of post- Return of the Jedi being in theaters, they start to bring in Boba Fett and the Bounty Hunters and Admiral Akbar and a bunch of Mon Calamari show up because the Falcon lands on some planet and gets sinks under the water in the mud and these squid snake monsters come up and Admiral Akbar has to put on like a suit with like a jetpack and a bubble helmet and go on the mud. And it pretty much all your dreams come true in these comics. Cond-
2: if you haven't figured it out already, they are a treasure trove, like we said, of just gems and jewels of amazing Star Wars stories that unless you had, like we were saying, all the volumes of the Dark Horse trade paperbacks, they were kinda hard to piece together these storylines, but these Marvel editions are amazing. I don't know. If we haven't sold you already on um, picking these up, you really should. They're easily available on Amazon they're not very expensive there's even kind of more expensive like hardcover editions of the newspaper strips like real classy versions and I don't know if you've never checked them out before they're definitely worth a read because they're an
3: incredible little piece of Star Wars history good news too up until recently they were not in the Marvel Unlimited service and they are there now so if you're Unable to track down the paperbacks or whatever, and you have a subscription to Marvel Unlimited, Um, they're all there. The early adventures with Russ Manning and the later Goodwin Williams stuff, Williamson stuff is there. So, yeah. And huge shout out again
2: to Ed Summer, an unsung hero in Star Wars history. And without him, this bizarre Star Wars comics thing may never exist. And we have so many amazing stories that I don't know if we would have if it wasn't for uh, Ed Summer.
3: I can't I can't imagine a world without Star Wars and comics being as intertwined as they are. So yeah, thank you for making all of this possible.
5: <laughs> Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight don't be scared. It's only the Death Star destroying another world. Relax. It's only a movie and it's all for fun. Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested.
2: All right, so iTunes reviews, Apple Podcast reviews, whatever you want to call it. If you listen on an Apple something or other when you're done listening to this episode, head over there, write us a little review, tell us what you thought, and we will read your review in an upcoming show. We love getting them. We love reading them. And it helps the show in some mysterious, mysterious way.
3: And check us out on BlastPointsPodcast.com, Instagram, twitter facebook and sign up for the facebook group (laughs) it's where it's blast points
2: 24 hours a day in middle of the night people are posting wacky star wars stuff it's the best place on the internet the blast points super chill group or whatever you want to
3: call it and if you like the show and you want to help us out check us out on our patreon we have bonus episodes movie commentaries and all kinds of fun
2: stuff yeah, we had a commentary for The Last Jedi on there recently. We did Spider-Man Far From Home, and we're getting ready for a whole new month of exclusive Patreon goodness on there that we're looking forward to for August. And next week, it's the return of Phantom Menace year. What's I wonder what Phantom Menace year is going to be like next week. What could it be? You're going to have to tune in and find out. Phantom Menace year returns next week, but... For episode 181, the Star Wars newspaper strips, that's about it. That's about all we got. Seriously, go find those books. Get them on the Marvel Unlimited app. Do what you can because you got to read these stories. They're so good. Yeah,
3: they're totally worth your time. And if they're not, I'm sorry. But (laughs) I can't get enough of them. So, yeah, give them a shot and let us know what you think. Yeah, love to hear it. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye bye.
5: May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.
4: I think it's important to have a, a museum that, I used to jokingly say, uh, supports all the orphaned arts that nobody else wants to see, but everybody loves. So, that's my, my uh, dream for this. <laughs>
5: May the force be with us. All-